0: maybe can you remember, and I know this is kind of a morbid way to start the sermon, but maybe you can remember the first funeral that you ever attended. There's something about your first funeral um, that's a little bit um, disorienting. Um, I can actually remember because when I was growing up, when I was 19, um, still, you know, my parents were doing great, my my grandparents were doing great, And uh, so in our family, we hadn't really had any funerals to speak of. And when I was 19, and I've told you this story before, but um, one of my best friends who was a couple years older than me and uh, was kind of mentoring me, uh, we were having, at our church uh, that week, we were having an evangelistic crusade. So anyone, anyone ever go to an evangelistic crusade in your home church? Right? And you, so you'd, we'd have an evangelist come in, and uh, they would just basically yell at everyone every night for hours, and everyone would get saved again every night. And um, so we were doing this, and about halfway through the crusade one night, um, Steve, one of my best friends, was uh, he was driving home from the crusade, and as he was going through an intersection, there was someone else who was the same mage who was going um, kind of in this direction and Steve was going here and uh, this kid was drunk and he drove right through the red light and uh, hit Steve and he was killed instantly. And um, I just remember I didn't find out till the next morning and the next morning I got the call and so um, I just kind of remember rushing up there to be with the family and uh, there was something about it that was so surreal to me but I uh, had never really been to a funeral before, and the night before the funeral, um, they were having a viewing, and maybe you've been to a viewing before, but a viewing is basically where they'll take the, the open casket. And have the body there and you can go, it's in a room and you can go kind of visit and see and say your goodbyes and that kind of stuff. And I just thought it would be a good idea for me to do that, having never done that before. And so I went and I was there. I just remember being in there by myself, um, kind of just something about, you know, there's your friend that you love, and he's looking great. He's all laid out there and dressed nice, and, but he's not talking to you. you know, he's not responding to you. And uh, I can just remember it was, felt like I was there forever, just kind of praying and, and, and crying and trying to come to grips with. I, I guess the thing that I remember more than anything else was I just kept thinking that at any moment, he was just going to sit up and start talking. Like I, I, there was part of me that thought, I think it, that, that might happen. And there's a part of me that knew, well, of course, that, that isn't going to happen. That, that doesn't happen. But I guess what I'm saying is, for me, the whole situation felt extremely unnatural. It didn't feel right that he would be there, that he would be dead, that he couldn't talk to me. And I, I said that last week, uh, as we were looking at the story of the centurion, I said, this world doesn't function the way it was originally designed. Because when God made the world, it was, it was very good. And there were no funerals, and there, there were no viewings, and there was no drunk drivers going through intersections, and, and all of this stuff. I, I said last week that sin has kind of created an industry that we call the evening news, because that's what, like, what would the evening news be without sin? So we turn on the news, and, you know, we hear about Charleston, and we hear about war, and crime, and suffering, and disease, and death, and it's just so much fun to watch the evening news, and there wouldn't be any evening news. It'd be like the closing story if it wasn't for sin. But this is a world that we live in. Before I came to Gateway, I was a youth pastor. And um, that's what I was, that was I, what I was trained to do. It's what I wanted to do. It's what I love to do. But you know, when you're a youth pastor, you, there's certain things you don't deal with. Like, you know, I... I dealt with, uh, you know, dating advice and, you know, how to, how to follow Christ, how to be a witness in high school. We'd talk about that. we talk about things like sex and alcohol and obeying your parents and cleaning your room and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really prepare you to talk about things like illness and cancer and heart disease and just old age and death. And then, uh, and then I came to Gateway. And when I came here, I didn't realize how unprepared I was for that whole part of ministry. And I'd only been here a couple weeks, and uh, there was a couple in the church um, that had been here for a while, and during the greeting time, right before I came to preach, um, the gentleman came up to me and he said, my wife has just been diagnosed with cancer, and she's not going to live long. And we need you to come over to the house and be pastoral, you know, (laughs) whatever you do that fixes everything. And I remember thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. And so I remember going over there and being with them. I just remember it being very uncomfortable and, and very awkward. I just felt very sorry for them because I was, I felt so inadequate for the job. And then it wasn't very long after that, I got to make my first nursing home visit, which was quite an experience again never been in a nursing home before. And I just, you know, I got a call and we have a lady in our church and she needs you to, you know, come visit with her. So I remember going there and Kind of walking down the hall and thinking about what a depressing place it was and how most of those people were, they were not, not going to walk out of that place um, on their own. They would have been probably carried out and I just remember visiting with that lady and it was, again, it was so awkward and I felt so unprepared and again, just so unnatural. Like, is this really what God intended? And, uh, and then how do you deal, how do you help people who are going through those kind of things? What do you say? You know, what do you, what do you do? And then um, after about, not even quite two years, I think my wife and I had been here about 19 months, and um, our, son, our son got sick, our oldest son. And when I say he got sick, I mean it was life and death. We didn't know if he was going to survive. We were pretty much living at OHSU at that time, and so life was kind of a whirlwind because we had a two-month-old as well, and then we had our oldest son who wasn't quite two years old. And so I remember just like meeting at this big table with all these doctors and their white coats and you know nobody we don't know we don't actually know what he has they'd say and we don't know if he's going to survive and if he does we don't know how long and so I you know just kind of remember all that and then I remember like all the interesting conversations I had with people who were really well-meaning you know I again what do you say when you're with somebody who's going through something like that. And, and I remember being around people who would try to, exp- you know, they'd try to explain to me why it was happening, you know. Like, I think this is what God's doing. I think this is what's going on. I, I remember one day going out to my mailbox, not where we live now, but at our previous house, going out to the mailbox, and I had a neighbor who was, who, who loved Christ, was well-meaning, but he kind of met me at the mailbox, and he said, you know, we heard about what's going on with your son, and he said, you know, God's just really given me a word, and that word is that um, you've sinned in some way, and you need to repent of your sin, and as soon as you repent of your sin, um, then God will forget, you know, he'll heal your son. And I, I remember looking at my neighbor and saying, you know, I have repented of, believe me, of every sin that I can think of, of every sin I, I might have thought of, of everything I haven't even done, but who knows, maybe I, I'm like, I've repented, I've been on my knees, I've cried tears, and not, you know, nothing's changed. And, and then one day we were up at, the, up at OHSU, And you just—if you've been in a situation like that that goes on for a while, you know—you just kind of get to a place where you you just feel like you get numb. And um, and I I remember sitting there one day, just really tired. And uh, a couple came to visit us. Um, You know them—they're part of our congregation at Duane and Vitra. And uh, they they came. um, I remember Duane coming in and sitting next to me. I was just sitting there. I'm just—I'm done. I got—I have nothing left to say. And uh, I don't really need more explanations or anything. He came and sat next to me, put his arm around me, probably 20, 30 minutes seemed like he never said a word ever. He didn't say one word the whole time. And then he just prayed and he left. And that began for me kind of a transition. And what I learned was this, that in the midst of, of pain and in the midst of sorrow, that we have a God, a God of comfort, and not just a God of comfort, but a God of power, And sometimes God changes our circumstances and sometimes he doesn't. But here's the thing I learned. His peace doesn't have anything to do with either of those two situations. God has a peace that he offers us that goes beyond comprehension. It goes beyond our circumstances. It goes beyond whether God changes something or whether God doesn't change something. There is a peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. That God will guard our hearts and our minds. And what I discovered was that it's not just a Bible verse, that it's real, that God offers that to us. And I know many of you have experienced that as well. And as a pastor, I've heard a lot of your stories. I've heard a lot of stories from people in our church, stories that um, they, don't, they don't utter out in the open about pain and about suffering and about loss. And I know that some of you have, have lost loved ones, some of you have buried spouses, parents, children. Dear friends, and we had a woman here last weekend who had just found out about the death of her brother before she got here last weekend. And that's, that's part of life, death. It's, it's part of what we experience. Here's what I want us to understand this morning as we come to this passage in Luke. And that is this, that we have a Savior that seeks hurting people. That's the first point. I'm going to get my remote here. There you go. So we have a God who seeks hurting people. He doesn't run from them. He doesn't ignore them. He comes after us. In chapter 7, verse 11, which is where we're picking up the story today, it says, Now soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain. Nain is a little town. It's the only time right here that we ever hear of this town. It's about a 20-mile walk from Capernaum, which is where we last Uh, We're talking about Jesus, so it's about a day walk. Um, It's a very small place. Uh, Why did he go there? Again, we don't know that, you know, he's got a large crowd of people that are following him at this point. We don't know hundreds or if there's a thousand people. We don't know. But there's a crowd of people and Jesus. They're at Capernaum and Jesus, I don't even know if he says it. He just starts walking, hits the road, walking toward Nain. It's a day's walk. People are probably wondering like where we're going, you know, what what, what are we going to do? But Jesus has an appointment that no one else really knows about. It says, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, we're told that this lady is a widow. So here's what we know about her this is her second significant funeral, right? It's the second one. She's already buried her husband, and now she's burying her only son. And some of you have buried a spouse, and you know that loss and and that pain, and that's her. That's what she suffered. Now, in that day, they didn't have social security and they didn't have a kind of a social safety net as we have today. And so if, if a woman became a widow and she had a son, it was the responsibility of the son to take care of her and make sure she had a place to live and, you know, that she had food and all that stuff. And so that would have been what this son had done. And now she's burying her only son. So this is a complicated thing for her. It's not just the emotional Stress that she's facing, but even just her life—what's gonna, what's gonna happen with her? Who's gonna provide for her at this point? And burying a spouse is hard, and it's difficult. And some of you have shared what that was like for you. But, but burying a child is a whole other kind of pain altogether, isn't it? As one person said, burying a child is—it's—it's it's like a period placed before the end of a sentence. It's a story that wasn't done and that's this woman so here she is she's devastated and she's mourning and so we have the funeral procession that's taking place here now They would do a funeral procession back then, not like today. So today, when someone passes away, usually there's about a week. And during that week, everything's being prepared. and, And, you know, people have a chance to emotionally get in that place and get ready for the funeral. But back then, because of the weather and all that and the temperature and the humidity, usually they would bury a body within about 24 hours. So this is, what's happening here is really fresh. It's really raw and usually the procession would start at the home of the person and it would make its way through the town and go out of the city gates to the cemetery and the widow, the woman would be in front. There was a theological reason why Rabbi said that women would be at the front of the processional, which we won't get into right now, but she would have been there and normally she would have been with her family, um, but that we know of, there's no family that's there for her. It's just her walking all alone at the, at the front of this processional. No, we know there would have been professional whalers or, or, or mourners there, and flute players, and for us, I, I know that seems really weird, so they would they would actually hire people, and their job was to like cry really loud and and you know to yell and to mourn, and they would have flute players that would play really loud, and again, we'd probably like one. what 's all with that but see back then it wasn't like today today' we're, when it comes to death we 're supposed to be so stoic and you know, we kind of suck it in and bite our lip and, you know, and besides that, by the time the funeral takes place, we've had some time to work it through. But here, it's really raw. And they were, they wanted people to work through their grief. So what they would do is, was, was really compassionate when you think about it. They would hire some people to be really loud. That was their job. To be so loud, to cry so loud, to play the flute so loud, that the family could mourn and cry and wail and just, just let it out. And, and they wouldn't be the center of attention. Everyone wouldn't be staring at them, which is, which is brilliant. It's so much better, I think, than what we do today. And we're told that the whole village is, has shut down and they're there for this woman because it's the second funeral that they've, they've had for the family. And then it says, just as they're exiting the village, just as they're going out the gate to the cemetery, Jesus shows up, which I love. I mean, like, what are the chances that Jesus would show up just as she's leaving? And of course, it's a 100% chance because <laughs> it's Jesus, right? Like, this is all planned. And, and Remember now, last week, the centurion asked Jesus to come and, because he had faith to heal his servant. But here, no one had faith. No one asks Jesus to come. The widow didn't ask. The deceased son didn't ask. The mayor of the city didn't ask. This is Jesus doing because Jesus seeks people who are not seeking him. This is what he does. He pursues people, he serves people, he saves people that are not looking for him. In verse 13 it says, and and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Spide is the Greek word there. It means to, uh, it's it's literally that kind of a visceral gut reaction it's not just a it's not just a thought reaction it's a it's a gut have you ever seen somebody in a situation that was so dire that you literally felt for them like down inside and that's Jesus he feels for her Like I would ask you this, when you when you see a needy person, when you hear that something's happened to someone and they're in a needy place, are you the kind of person that like tends to go toward do you call them and say, What can I do? Do you go to their house and say, What can I do for you? If they're at church, do you like make a beeline? Are you kind of the person who's like, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep a safe distance? I'll I'll wave across the room and say, Hey, you know, email me if you have a prayer request, right? Because you know it's gonna take time and emotions and energy. And my question is, do you pursue that when other people are hurting or do you keep a safe distance see jesus is the one who see he seeks that he comes after that after people who are emotionally wrecked and and needy and people who are losing it this is what jesus does he seeks and here's the second thing we notice in the passage and that that is that we have a god we have a savior who brings life in verse 14 and then he came up and he touched the buyer now i'll I love just the matter-of-factness of of this story. There's not like a lot of uh, superfluous detail here. He came up and he touched the buyer. That would have been the the open casket area. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother so the, the buyer here is just a, it's an open coffin. In those days, they didn't, they didn't sanitize death. They didn't, you know, they didn't try to hide it from people. It would be out there in the open. And so they're kind of carrying this casket, and they're carrying it through town. And Jesus walks up, and he touches the buyer. Now, you weren't supposed to do that. Now, without getting into a lot of detail, besides the fact that it's just icky, all right? Um, there's the whole ceremonially unclean thing, and you know, if you touched it, then you were unclean, and you couldn't go to worship until you'd taken a shower in Purell, and you know, you'd had some time that went by. And actually, this is really an interesting thing to me, because a lot of commentators have talked about how, you know, back then you weren't supposed to touch dead people, <laughs> It just kind of makes sense, or touch the thing that dead people were on, and if you did, there was all this issue. And the idea was this, that we live in a world that is defiled, we live in a world that, that uh, is full of sin and we have to be careful. We have to be careful about what we touch, careful about what we see, careful about what we listen to, and we should be. We should be very careful and discerning about all those things. But Jesus is different, and I love this part about the story. See, for most of us, we have to be careful because if we touch defiled things, oftentimes those defiled things will have an impact on us. It's reversed with Jesus. Jesus is a God who, when he touches defiled things, he makes them clean, it's like in reverse. So, and of course, we know that's what he did with us when he loved us, when he reached out to us. We have a God that kind of does all this in reverse. So Jesus touches the buyer and says the bearer stood still because we don't know that they even know who he was. So they're like, who is this guy? And what's he doing? And you're not supposed to do that. And then he says, he says out loud, he says, I say to you, arise. So he's just putting it all out there on the line, right? It's not like, it's like when a guy goes up to bat And he points, like, like, I'm going to hit it right there, like, right, that's Jesus, I'm going to hit it out of the ballpark right now, just watch, just see if it isn't what I do. And then the dead man sat up, and he began to speak. And again, people, everyone wonders, wonder what he said, you know, was he like, anyone have a sandwich, I'm starving, or, you know, like, what are you guys looking at? You know, or you're not going to believe who I was just talking to. I did, you know, who knows? We don't really know what he was, what he said. But imagine, just imagine the transitional um, emotion at that moment. Like, try to imagine at one moment, everyone is in tears and, and utter despair. And, and they're, trying to, they're trying to process their loss. And then the next moment, unspeakable joy I mean, it's a Zantac moment for sure. I just, you know, so Jesus gave him to his mother. So, so try to imagine the mother, right? I mean, imagine if it was one of your kids. Imagine if it was your spouse. And, and one moment, you were just in, you're just utterly wrecked emotionally because <laughs> you're thinking about your future without that person. And it's been 24 hours. You're mourning, you're hurting. You're at the, you're at the depth, right, emotionally. You're at the bottom and then suddenly, like that, you're at the top. Like just that fast. How long do you think she held her son? You know, like really, Mom, I gotta, I gotta shower, I got, you know, like how many tears do you think there were? How many shouts of joy and, and praises to God? Because she had lost her son. She's just starting to come to terms with it, and now he's back. And this is a great Picture for us. I've I've got it in your notes for you, but in several ways. The first is it's a, spiritually it's a great picture of salvation. It's a great picture because we we were like the son. The Bible says that before we knew Christ, we were dead. We were dead in our sin, in our trespasses, and like that dead son, we didn't seek Jesus. We didn't ask Jesus for help. Uh, you know this this young man. He's not he's not looking for help because he's dead. Right? Dead people don't ask for help. Dead people don't look for a doctor. Dead people don't look for healing. That was that man, that, that, was, that was us. This man contributed nothing. Jesus found him, Jesus reached out to him and Jesus gave him a gift of grace. Jesus did all of it. This man contributed nothing and that's a beautiful picture of our salvation. That's how it works. We were dead in our sin. We were not looking for God. God was looking for us. It was God who gave us spiritual life, gave us a new heart, gave us the Holy Spirit, and brought us back to life. In Ephesians 2, 4, it tells us this. Notice, but God being rich in mercy, remember last week we said, mercy is where we don't get what we deserve. We deserve judgment, but we don't get that. We get grace because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, we were dead. We weren't looking for God. We weren't asking for help. We were dead. In our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By a gift of God, by a work of God, by a pursuing of God, it's by God. It's what God does for us. It's a beautiful picture for us spiritually. Physically, it's a reminder that in the Gospels, again, we have a Savior who has that power to heal the sick, as we've already seen and we'll see again. And even to bring the dead back to life. Now, did he do it for everyone? Did he heal every sick person that came along his path? No, only some. Why? Well, it was for his purposes. Each time, as we'll see as we go through Luke, he's always doing it for, for a purpose. He has something to to teach us about himself and about life. And I want to make a distinction here, and I, I think I have it in your notes, and that is that what we have here is not a resurrection. So a resurrection is when you die and then you, you raise from the dead in a glorified body never to die again. This is what some theologians call a resuscitation or a revivification. It's a nice word, say that fast. Revivification, I can't even do it. All right, so this is when a revivification is when a dead person returns to a normal earthly life in their earthly body, and then they live for a duration of time, and then they die again. So of course, you know, here's the thing. People are like, oh, that would be so cool. I, yeah, but then you gotta die again. So it depends on how much you like that process, right? But, and then after you die the second time, then you're resurrected. And that's what happens for this son. It's a resuscitation or a revivification, not a resurrection. And Jesus can do this, but did he do it a lot? Actually, the gospels only give three accounts of him doing this. It was, it was rare. Why do it at all? Because Jesus wants to reveal something that we need to know. He is the king of a kingdom that is different than the kingdom of this world. Because in the kingdom of this world, there is death. And there's no reversal for that. And it comes for everyone. But in the kingdom of God, there's a king who has power. He has conquered sin and he has conquered death. And he can bring to life anyone that he chooses. And ultimately, this points to the fact that for those of us in Christ, there is a resurrection that awaits us. In fact, At another revivification that Jesus did, I'm going to be able to say that word by the end, Um, in John 11, which was of Lazarus, Jesus says this. He says, I am the, notice, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because Jesus has conquered death and everyone who dies in Christ will rise And stand before their Savior. And all those who belong to him will receive eternal life in Christ. And by raising this widow's son, Jesus is revealing something about himself. That he is a king. And a king who has power over sin and over death. He is a king. He is God in the flesh. And he is, and that's our third point, he is more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet, which he is, but he's more than a prophet in verse 16. Now fear sees them all. All right? So you can just... You can just imagine the fear that happens in this. Right? And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And, and God has visited his people, which certainly he had. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now this word fear um, comes from the Greek phobos, which is where we get the idea of the phobia or the fear. It's the idea of being overwhelmed. And so somebody asked me today, what do you think was so overwhelming or fearful for them? And I think it's because this was an unexpected ending to a funeral. Like chances are they'd been to funerals before, right? And they, they knew how it worked. You, you started at the house and you walked through the town and when you got outside the gate and you got to the cemetery and you, you buried the person and it was done. And that's not how this went down. This was, right, this is completely different, and they're, they're, they're disoriented at this point. They don't, they've never seen this, right? It says they glorify God, they're, they're in awe of Jesus, they're like, there's something about this guy that's different, because we've never seen a funeral like this before, but I think his power over death for them is disorienting. I mean, you, right, you can imagine if you were, if you were here and we we're having a funeral and, and you know, there was the, the casket here and in the middle of the funeral, the guy pops up and he's like, hey, you know, what do we got for dessert in the gym? Because I'm hungry. I mean, that would be for most of you, you'd have to think about that for a minute, you know? You'd, have to, you'd be like, hey, wait, I need a minute before I, because you'd have to process that because it's disorienting for us. So this is a response. They're like, Jesus must be a great prophet. Now, when they say that, being good Jews, being those who knew the Old Testament, they're thinking of something that might elude us today. They're probably thinking at this point of Elijah. They're probably thinking of a story of a prophet who had lived more than 500 years before, who had also gone to a small town, and there he met a widow... And this widow eventually has a son who dies. And, and so Elijah raises his son from the dead. But in order to do it, Elijah, it takes him a while. It takes him all night. He, has to, he stretches out over this, this son's body and he prays. And then he has to do it again. And then he has to do it again. And it takes a while. And they're probably thinking, small town, widow, only son. Hey, the, Jesus must be a prophet. We've heard this. But the difference is Jesus simply spoke the word and it was done. Just, just very matter-of-factly, right? Just kind of like business. Oh, yeah, get up. Yeah, and that's, and that's it. It's done. And he doesn't have to appeal to anyone else's power because the power is in himself. And this, this report spread, it says, it spread about him. So you can imagine like people who were there went home and said, you know, like, how was the funeral? you're not gonna believe it, right? Like, they're telling their family, they're telling their friends on Monday at work, they're telling everyone, oh, you're not gonna believe this. I went to a funeral, you're not gonna believe it. Like, just imagine, they had a pretty good story to tell, and so this is, this is getting out. This is our Savior, this is Jesus. Here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to get from this. We have a Savior who understands. We have a Savior who can sympathize with our, with our suffering. Who understands when we lose someone, when we mourn, when we suffer loss? We have a Savior who understands. He's been there. He knows what it's like. Sometimes people will say, "Well, but it was different for Jesus, right?" I mean, because he was God, so that uh, that changes things a little bit, right? That probably changed the way. I mean, so it's not the same because you know Jesus knows how the story ends. But the Bible says that Jesus had a body just like ours. Physically, he felt what we feel. He felt fatigue. He felt hunger. He felt pain. In fact, he felt pain like most of us will never know, will never experience a crucifixion on the cross. And then emotionally, emotionally, imagine what Jesus felt. I mean, we know, for instance, that he wept at the death of a friend. And you know, theologians like to argue about like why was he crying? And you know, was he just some people think he just felt like the whole crowd was pathetic or whatever. And, you know, I mean, I just it's very simple. I think Jesus was mourning the loss of a friend. As he as a human in a human body. He's understanding what it's like to be to be separated from people we love and people we care about. But even more than that, just just imagine for a moment. Here's Jesus. He's he he comes to The earth to to people He designed and people He lovingly created, and the people that He keeps alive, gives breath, gives life, gives food, sustains on a daily basis. It's Jesus who does that. And then imagine those people that you love and sacrifice for turning on you and rejecting you and mocking you, nailing you to a cross and laughing at you. (laughs) You're literally sustaining. Them at that moment. Their ability to laugh and kill you. Imagine the emotional pain that Jesus must have felt on that day and that moment. And people say, oh, it was easy for Jesus. (laughs) People say, yeah, but Jesus knew how the story would end. I mean, you know, he knows that when he's on the cross and he's suffering an excruciating, agonizing death, carrying out the sin of the world, after living a righteous life, he knew he was gonna rise from the dead, so it was easier for him. But don't forget, we have a Savior who told us how our story is gonna end. He told us, yes, there will be death, yes, there will be pain, yes, there will be suffering, but there will also be resurrection. He told us that. He told us that again and again and again. And he's, he's just reaching out to us in this passage and trying to reassure us. The question is, will you embrace that? Will you believe that? I mean, think about it. If you really believe in the resurrection of Christ, doesn't that pretty much change everything about your life? Doesn't it pretty much change every relationship? And every problem and every joy and every moment of every day. So this is kind of a big deal. This is something that needs to sink down into our souls. We have a Savior who rose from the dead. and He has promised to do the same for those of us who know him. So if you're suffering physically, like the servant we looked at last week, or if you're more like the mother in this story, dealing with loss, or maybe it's more, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship, the loss of a marriage, rejection of a friendship. Maybe it's something financial or illness, or there's something coming that you're just dreading, you know. You need to understand that you have a Savior that knows and understands. And I would say this, it's not just an idea Okay, it's not just an idea to be held on to. God has given us some tangible ways to experience this in our everyday lives. So I want to give you this as we close, and this is in your notes. It's just some practical ways to experience God's compassion for you this week as you go through difficult things. And the first one is that you need to trust in Jesus. So just very simply, before you can experience the peace of God, the love of God, the resurrection of Christ, you need to know Christ. You need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that God came down here in the flesh and he became one of us because even though he had given us life, even though the life that he had given us was very good, the Bible says that we sinned. That is, we took the life that he gave us instead of living life the way he intended. According to his design, according to his will, we took our toys and we went in the other direction. We said, I'm gonna do what I want with my life, with my relationships, with my time, with my money, with my abilities. We walked away from God and we sinned. We took Christ off the throne of our life and put ourselves on the throne. And the Bible says that even though we deserve death for that, even though we deserve separation from God, the Bible says that actually God came after us, came after us, he sought us. So Jesus came down here and the Bible says he lived a righteous life in our place. And then he went to the cross and on the cross he took your sin and my sin and he offers us his righteousness. And for all those who place their faith in Christ, scripture says that there will come a day when this life is over And our new life, our eternal life, will have just begun. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, you need to understand that chances are God has already been pursuing you and that's how you got here today. Because he wanted you to hear that he loves you, cares about you, and has a solution for your problem and we'll give you a chance in a moment just to pray and to talk with God about that here's the second thing that I want to mention though and that is that you need community so we talk about this all the time but I, I love in the story of the widow right she lives in a small town and when her husband died and now when her son dies they're there for her right they're all they close down their shops they, cl- they stay home from work they all come and they do life with her The problem for us today is we don't live in a world like that. Like many of us, we don't even know our neighbors anymore, right? They don't want to know us. (laughs) They don't have anything to do with us. And so for many of us, where are we going to get community? Where are we going to have relationships with other people who know us, who love us, who are committed to us even when we're needy? People who who are praying for us. People who we get together with on a regular basis. And so that's why Gateway we have something called grow groups. And again, I know talk about this all the time and it sounds like a commercial And I guess it is. Because we want you to understand that you need to be living in community with other believers. So we have groups that meet every night of the week. Some that meet during the day. They meet in different neighborhoods, different kinds of groups. If you're not in a group, you need to get in one. And you can talk to myself or one of the pastors afterwards or call during the week. And we'd love to talk to you about getting you in a group. But you need to be living in community. Here's the third thing. And we'll talk more about this next week. You need to be actively working out your questions and your fears. Because sometimes in life, we have questions. Sometimes in life, stuff happens to us that we don't understand. Where is God? What was God doing? Why didn't God solve my problem? Why didn't God change my circumstances? In Romans 8, 28, and I think it's in your notes here, Paul says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. He doesn't say all things are, you know, awesome. Some things are sin. Sometimes there are sinful things that happen in our world that spill over into our lives. Sometimes people do sinful things, say sinful things. Sometimes people do stuff because they want to hurt us, because they want to drag us down. But here's a promise we have from God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not everything that happens to us is good, but God has the ability to repurpose everything. He repurposes everything for our good to grow us. It doesn't mean that it will always be easy. It doesn't even mean that we'll always understand what God is doing. Years ago and um, a lot of years ago when our uh, son was in the hospital a lot and um, with his kidney disease, there was a lot of going to the hospitals, a lot of testing. And you know, when, when you're When a child is two years old and you have to take them in to, to have something done, like get a blood draw that's painful, and they've had it done a few times and they really don't like the suggestion of it, um, it can get really kind of dicey and difficult. And I remember one time in particular where we had to take our son in to get some blood work done. And so he, he's just a little over two years old. So we didn't even really discuss it in advance because it's not going to do any good. And we go to the hospital and we walk in, and pretty soon he figures out what's going on. And so, you know, in the waiting room, they come out. You know how it is? There's a. There, They've got a team. It's pediatric team. They know what they're doing. We'll take care of it. So they take him in. But we're waiting out there, and we can hear, uh, we can hear him crying. And, and pretty soon, a nurse comes out and says, you know, is there, is there any way that you can help us with this? Because he's just really inconsolable. And so I said, you know, yeah, I'll come in. And so I came in, and, and, you know, they said the best thing would be if you could just hold him down and just, you know, try to comfort him. So... I'm holding him down and I'm trying to console him and they're trying to stick a needle into him and he starts just saying, you know, daddy, stop. And it's just breaking my heart. And one of the things that was really difficult for me that I was thinking about during that time was, I was my bigger concern was not for the moment because it was for his good. He absolutely needed that test. My concern was that he would feel so betrayed because he didn't understand what was going on, that in the future, he might not trust me. And that was what really broke my heart. And it made me think, do you think that ever happens between us and God? you think there's ever times when God has to hold us down because he loves us? He loves us, and it hurts. It's difficult. But we have to go through it. And he loves us. I just wonder at times if maybe some of us don't have resentment towards God or a lack of trust simply because God did something that was for our good see this is why God makes us promises like Romans 8 28 because he knows we're going to need him he knows we're going to need those promises because at times it's just by sight it's not going to make sense it won't always be easy we won't always understand it all the time But this is where faith kicks in. That we say, God, you know what? I trust what you say in your word. I trust your promises. I trust that you love me. I trust that you're involved. I trust that you're causing everything that happens in my life to be for my good. In long-term, folks, the end game is this. In heaven, there will be no more sin. In heaven, there will be no more death, no more disease, no more sickness. We'll be reunited with believers that have gone before us. Which is a cool thought, but in the meantime, we got to hold on to our Savior. In the meantime, we trust Him. I want to mention just uh, something else really quickly. We have a program called Grief Share, and for some of you, if you if you're in this place right now where you've suffered loss, or a time in the future comes when you suffer loss, I want you to remember that we have a ministry at this church that is specifically geared to walk you through that with other people who are going through it, with people who have been trained. They want to help you. Don't try to do this alone. We have a team of people here that want to help you walk through that. There's a table in the back as you leave today with information about that. There'll be somebody there. And they meet most Sundays. or are not meeting today because of Father's Day. But you can talk to someone, get some information, or call the office. But really consider that if you're, if you're dealing with grief right now. And lastly, I just, you know, ask for help. Just let your spiritual family help you. So last weekend, we closed the service this way, and I know you, it was kind of awkward. We. Uh we invited you. We just said, you know, if you're here and you're suffering, if you're hurting and you could use some prayer, you should get what you need. If you need prayer, you should get prayer. And so we just said, you know, we're going to sing a song as we close and and you can sing. Or if you need prayer, you could just kind of raise your hand and someone near you will come and they'll pray with you. And uh, I know this isn't really kind of our culture, what we do. And then it was really confusing on Saturday night. <laughs> we were, I hadn't really thought about it. And the band started playing and somebody raised their hand, but it was... It was to the music, and then somebody came to pray for me. They're like, no, I don't need. I'm just need verse two. Just you know, and so. But here's what I did see. I didn't see a lot of hands go up, but here's what I did see last week. And I saw a lot of people who got up out of their chair and went over and found someone else who they knew needed prayer, and they prayed for them. And I I love that because we're a family, right? I mean, ideally in a family, you shouldn't even have to ask for prayer. People should just know, and you know. So I want to encourage you, the band's going to come up, we're going to close with a song, and um, if you need prayer, then I want you to ask for it. And um, if, if you know somebody who's in here today, and you know they're hurting, they're suffering, I'd encourage you just to go over to them, don't make a big deal out of it, just go over and just, just pray for them, just love them, just let them know that God loves them. We're family, that's what we do. We are a church. We take care of one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Amen? Let's pray together.